if there's anyone who's contemplating founding a company, don't wait. Get started. Throw yourself into the deep end and figure out how to swim. You'll be so incredibly impressed by what you learn about yourself. Don't sit there on the sidelines creating lists and saying, I'm not ready yet. I'll only be ready when X, Y, and Z happens. It's not necessarily about building the next billion-dollar company or unicorn. It's about building yourself. And so if anyone is sitting there on the sidelines thinking about an idea, just go do it. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. When Zoe Berry was a kid, she had two things she wanted to be when she grew up, either a veterinarian or someone who writes checks. She gave the first a shot and ended up settling on the second. Today, she's CEO of ZapRx and a shining example of how drive and intellect can overcome adversity. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David, yes, I'm Lisa. curious about your life post-Twitter. You were an, a, an avid Twitter user, and then yeah. you, went, you went cold turkey a month or two ago. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, uh, <laughs> Are you, you know, taller, I, stronger now? <laughs> Better looking. <laughs> uh, you tell me. But uh, the um, yeah, the, I wrote a short piece for um, uh, our friend Luke Timmerman about yes, this. Yes, did. Um, this because so many people were asking, actually, which was, you know, like all these emails, like, what happened? I do feel like um, I see you less now, which is ridiculous because I see you the same, <laughs> but I hear, I, I read you less. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, it is like sort of less presence. Um, no, it's just fantastic. I just sort of, um, I realized I w- just what an incredible, not only a time sink, but what an attention sink it was and how there's just an incre- there's such a real performative aspect of Twitter and over time, you know, even even to have an experience, it becomes part of even then, then sort of sharing it on social media. And I just kind of really wanted to get back into my own head um, and to be able to focus a little bit better right after I just, I didn't lead to my quitting, but after I quit, I really discovered this book called Deep Work, which is about really the importance of focusing and how hard it is to get stuff done hmm. and how you need to really focus. I really don't have time for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but a boom. Yeah, really. um, but if, I've actually found it really, um, you know, it's funny because I, you know, a year before, right, I quit um, uh, carbs, and I was a little, you know, still challenging. Um, but quitting Twitter has just been easy and fun. So, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's and it's not because there aren't a number of really good upsides to Twitter. So there really are. Mm-hmm. But the, the trade-offs, the overall, um, I'm just, you know, busy. I'd rather see you in person. So it's all good. Awesome. Well, um, speaking of awesome, uh, speaking of awesome, exactly. We're very lucky to have Zoe Berry on the show today. Zoe, how are you? Hey, everyone. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. Are you an avid Twitter user? No, I'm not an avid Twitter user. I think I have an intern <laughs> who helps you know, <laughs> make me stay relevant um, by posting things. That's what I. That's great. I think that's what people should do. It's not me who's <laughs> doing it. It's, it's a Zoe bot. That's so funny. <laughs> I love it. So before you started ZapperX, you spent a lot of time on Wall Street, both before and after testing out your hypothesis that you should be a veterinarian, I know. You even had a stint in Alaska helping to rehabilitate bald eagles and other birds of prey. So my question is this, who's easier to work with, wild animals or hedge fund executives on Wall Street? (laughs) I think uh, wild animals are are easier to read since they don't go through any of those classes, (laughs) you know, to to hide hide their emotions. Um, You know, bald eagles are very, uh, 
very transparent with how they're feeling, whereas hedge fund managers are less so. So why did you take the check writing path instead of the veterinarian path? Why didn't the veterinarian thing work out for you? Uh, that's a great question. So I'm not, not sure if uh, many people are aware of this, but there are only 25 vet schools in America. So it's really quite hard uh, to actually get into vet school. That's right. I heard it was harder to get into vet school than into med school. I've heard that from several people. Exponentially harder. Exponentially harder. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of medical schools. If you want to be a doctor, you can work really hard and pretty much get in, uh, but you can actually not get into vet school um, because there's just so few spots. But There's not like a vet school in Grenada or something? <laughs> no. Uh, but for me, I think the the other thing that I saw was that um, the wild animals uh, were terrified of the veterinarian. Uh, so they had a call, you know, um, they were very vocal, the, the raptors and the birds of prey, and they had a very specific call for when they saw or heard the veterinarian's car uh, coming. And, you know, I think that for how hard it is to get into vet school and then dedicating your life to saving uh, animals and then having them really passionately dislike you, that was, for me, the breaking point. Or I, I, couldn't, ha- I couldn't handle both of those things. It's probably how dentists feel because nobody likes going there either. That's for sure. Oh, my God. So how did you come to think of your other career alternative as being someone who writes checks? What's with the checkbook obsession that you had as a kid? Um, I think part of it was probably because we were so incredibly poor. Uh, you know, my first five years of life were really, uh, we were on the WIC Women and Children Food Stamp Program, my mother and I, and I really had a sense for how, um, you know, what the value of a dollar was. And it seemed to me like there were people who could just write checks or pay for things. And I remember my mom saying, you know, we can't afford cereal um, because it's $5 for a box. You only get, you know, three bowls of cereal out of that. We can't spend $5 on cereal. Uh so that checkbook, you know, it seemed as though there was this, you know, unnatural power that came. And I used to play with my mom's checkbook and sort of flip through them. And I just really wanted to be able to sort of harness that power and unlock it. So I did the stint on Wall Street, uh, you know, working for John Dawson, who's one of the founders of the hedge fund industry. And it was an incredible experience, you know, working with somebody like John uh, and I really like to see this sort of power of Wall Street, which is obviously a you know, polar opposite end of, of life experience versus the WIC Women and Children Food Stamp Program. Um, <laughs> Just to go back half a step, wait, how did you get from A to oh, B? Oh, man, that's a, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, maybe the short version then, but um, no, but I'm really interested. I mean, well, I think, yeah, especially like the, the, you know, that you ended up in Columbia. I mean, going from, you know, so many people who struggle early in life, you know, don't get a chance to get to college and, you know, all of that. But you kind of had a, 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 a second chance at things, exactly. right? Exactly. And I, I would say I had a mother who was incredibly fierce and she always put me first. So she worked, you know, two, three jobs at a time. And then she figured out how to get to New York City, get a job uh, in consulting. And it was, you know, in the 90s, uh, it was very sort of not done to have this non-going-to-the-office concept, you know, the work-from-home or flexible vacation time uh, or office hours. And she worked for a company that was, you know, modern-day what we would call a startup. And they had all those concepts in place. And it really enabled her to be a single working mother in a high-powered job because she had those, you know, flexible vacation and flexible office hours. 
And by doing that, she took a huge step up in her compensation, which enabled me to go to Chapin, which is a very competitive all-girls school in New York City. And that ultimately is what led me to be able to go to Columbia. Wow. Well, that's incredible to sort of go from this sort of um, like sort of like this WIC program, the way you, as you said, to Chapin. I mean, that's, that's, wow, that's, I mean, that's. Did you feel like you belong there? Did you feel like you fit in or did you feel awkward there? I went through a couple of different sort of life changes there. So when I first got there, I was, you know, the mother, my mother was a single working mother, which was very unusual. I think there were only a handful of students. Uh, one reason I was able to get in, though, is because she made sure that she did not apply for financial aid. So she just, you know, worked much harder in order to ensure that I was not on financial aid. Oh, my gosh. Had, you know, really you know, almost no money at all. So it all went to, to my education. Uh but then she remarried, and when she remarried, she remarried somebody who was very successful on Wall Street, and so my life changed dramatically, and I got to start experiencing, you know, the thrill of, you know, rising through the ranks. And, and, uh, and <laughs> Someone should make a movie about this. I mean, what a biopic, Yeah, it's very huh? Rachel Al- Alger. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, although I think I was kind of skating on my mom's uh, coattails at this point. And, you know, she just was so passionate about ensuring that I had the right experiences. So putting me in really competitive athletic programs. And uh, I studied abroad in France when I was, you know, 15 or 16, which is very unusual for people to do that. Most people study, study abroad in college. And so I had a, a lot that I could pull from in terms of life experiences, and I was able to channel all of that into, uh, you know, applying to college. And I was really grateful to go to Columbia. Uh, I did end up staying in New York City uh, for college, and it was kind of that breaking point that also led me to go on my adventure to Alaska. As I realized when I was 23, I'd only ever lived in New York City except for the quick, quick stint studying abroad, and I was desperate to get out and try a different life. And that's why I went up to Alaska. So you studied anthropology at Columbia, which is not exactly the well-worn path to checkbook writing. Um, (laughs) What is it that you took away from anthropology uh, as you moved into the business world? What did you learn there that was applicable to your future? Yeah, that's a a great question. It's a fair question. So anthropology is the study of people and culture, and it's all the different ways that you you know, build uh, a culture or values. And what's interesting is you develop the skill set to understand how people would act and or react in certain circumstances based on their culture. And what I realized is that you start honing in on things like, you know, in the recession, which stocks are going to be more resilient than others and why? You know, who are loyal consumers and why? What products have fickle consumers and why? So you really end up being able to understand a different lens. I think anthropology coupled with economics is a is a pretty compelling, uh, you know, com- combination of academic experiences. Obviously, you have to co- combine that with internships and you know, great mentors and things like that in order to really unlock the potential there. But I'd, I'd say that anthropology often gets confused with archaeology. So I'm not. You know, going <laughs> going around and you know dusting off yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bones with a toothbrush or anything like that, uh, and, and putting skeletons together. That's not what I was doing. It was more the study of, of people and culture and how uh, they act and react to things. So you got to Wall Street. You made your way there. Uh, what drew you there? What drew you back? Why did you walk away from it in the end? Yeah. So so I graduated from college in 2007, and everybody was going to Wall Street or the investment banks. 
And I was a little uh, more unsure if that was the path that I really wanted to go down. I worked for a startup right out of college, and then I got poached into a, a broker-dealer fund. And that's where I, that's kind of how I made my way uh, to Wall Street. So it wasn't my actual very first choice. I had worked at a startup. And once I saw that you know, scrappy environment where you could be a, a member of a team and have a huge role and huge, huge responsibility and, and a large impact. Uh, I wanted more of that. I think my sort of claim to fame is I was helping them. It was a, a company, a startup that put together conferences. They pretty much just printed money. It was a, it was a great <laughs> company. And uh, I got some fancy title I didn't deserve, like director of the content department or something. And I was helping put together the media conference and, you know, I had this thought, which is you know, 2007, and, you know, could uh, Christy Hefner was the, C- the CEO of Playboy at the time, and I thought, you know, could we invite the CEO of Playboy to come? Would that be appropriate? My hypothesis as to why that was relevant was that at this point, Playboy was really committed to being, you know, a print uh, publication, and, and they weren't really going online, and they were certainly <laughs> not going into the type of things that Playboy maybe were, could have gone into. I won't make any of the obvious jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of dancing around. I'm kind of dancing around this right now, but I think I think people probably understand where I'm going. And I cold wrote her an email, Christy Hefner, and she replied within four minutes and committed to being a keynote speaker. Wow! And that was my my big claim to fame uh, for my first job and getting Christy Hefner to come speak at our our media conference. That's awesome. So you were heavily impacted, I know, by the 2008 recession. Um, that must have been scary, considering your original, you know, life experience. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think what was interesting is I grew up in New York City, and I was at a breaking point where I was ready to leave. And I felt like I had, you know, clawed my way to the top. And I felt really confident that I could leave New York and come back whenever I wanted. And what I saw with my peers was that they had all worked really hard to get to Manhattan and live in New York City for their 20s. And when the job market pretty much evaporated around them, they were much more reluctant to leave. And what I saw were my peers basically maxing out their credit cards, you know, taking any and every job they could in finance just to keep kind of bolstering their resume, but they were not getting paid anywhere near what they should have been paid. And every year that passed, more and more graduates with you know fancy degrees in economics from Ivy League schools were, were also flooding New York City and you were in a race to the bottom where you know you might have gotten paid sixty thousand dollars but now you've got someone who's just graduated from college who's willing to take forty thousand dollars and then it was thirty five thousand dollars and I just said part of my language but like F this I'm out like there's no way I'm working for that little and working the hours I may as well go do something else and uh, bet on myself and go on an adventure and if I can't make money then I want to, you know, build a character and have, you know, good experience. And so I left New York City at that point to go on an adventure. And I went out to Colorado and I coached skiing and I went to Alaska and I, I saved bald eagles. And it was more about finding myself and finding, um, you know, what I was capable of. And what I found is that I was perfectly capable of doing those two things and then going back and getting another job, another experience on the East Coast again. And it wasn't that hard to leave and or come back. And I think a lot of my peers operated more out of fear that they got there and they couldn't leave because they could never come back. I remember one of the things you told me that I thought was so interesting, it seems like such a small thing, but I think it's not a small thing, is the lesson you learned about paying for staff lunches. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
So uh, ZapRx competes with a lot of the really big, prominent uh, tech companies. I think they're called Fangs. Um, so we, we compete for talent with uh, the top engineers. And a lot of these companies pay for lunches. And so I had this experience on Wall Street where when the recession hit, we had originally had these really fancy catered lunches. I mean, just off the charts food that were delivered from the top restaurants in New York City. And the first thing they cut uh, for budget was to bring it down to cold cuts, which you would think that people were so grateful the company was still paying for lunch. And instead, it was this, you know, very spoiled backlash of, you know, either A, where's my fancy lunch or B, you're not paying me my bonus. I don't want cold cuts for lunch. I'd rather buy my own food and I'd rather get paid. And it was such a, a incredible visceral reaction from the staff, either point A or point B, for this company that I worked for, as opposed to any appreciation for having lunch. That I really thought about. I thought about that <laughs> when I was building ZapRx, and we never went down the path of getting overly fancy in our lunches in case we ever had to scale back. But we still provide them. And we now do this uh, program called Forkable, which is a great startup, and you know anyone who's listening should consider it for uh, you know their their own startups and teams. But Forkable basically allows the employer to contribute a certain amount of dollars, so call it fifteen dollars, and you can pick from two or three restaurants that will be delivered. So you also can avoid all this. I'm gluten free. I'm vegetarian. I don't want Indian food today. You know, whatever it is, whatever fat is going through <laughs> the diet marketplace. Um, and then if the uh, employee goes over on the spend, they can uh, contribute their own dollars. So they can, if it's $18, they can contribute three. Sounds like a, a high deductible uh, health plan, but for food. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I, I found that people are so much more reasonable with this approach than when they got candidly like really bitchy if we picked you know food place A and they didn't want that food and it was like there was no appreciation for the lunches and it's been consistent across <laughs> Wall Street to the people I've hired out of Google to the people that are working in a startup and there's this really incredible food trigger my recommendation is to go with Forkable and let people figure it out and if they want to spend more they can spend their own dollars this is so fa- I have to say I'm like at least is watching me I'm just like captivated by literally everything you're saying this is <laughs> This is just this is just so cool and so interesting. It's just so um, real, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, the, no, the whole thing the unspoken, you know, little stories of work. So uh, how so how did you? So I'm with you up to this whole point in the story. I want to hear about Azaporex and what it does. Um, just to transition to that, how did you get involved in healthcare? Because everything else, you know, this is an incredible story, incredible journey. Actually, I think of my kids are writing about sort of the hero's journey, and like really, I feel like you're hitting all the steps of it. Um, but what is um, what, wh- how does healthcare fit into all of this? Because I, if, so, if I was listening to the story, it feels more like a pivot. Like, I'm not sure I would have guessed that the next step <laughs> is, you know, healthcare. Like, I wouldn't have seen that. That would have been a little bit from left field. So help me, uh, help me understand. Sure. Absolutely. So it, I did have this long-standing flirtation with healthcare, right? I was almost pre-med undergrad, but I chose the anthropology track since it was candidly easier than uh, <laughs> the pre-med track. And I was almost a veterinarian. I almost got my PhD in, in psych and neuroscience, but I kept going back to Wall Street because I couldn't find the right business uh, approach uh, to healthcare. So I ultimately I was on Wall Street, and I had a family member that got really sick and needed a specialty drug, and I couldn't understand why it took six months 
for this family member of mine to get access to this therapy. And in that time period, he deteriorated really rapidly with his disease. Oh, I'm so sorry. And it No, it's okay. And it, it wasn't until the insurance company realized what the cost of care was going to be uh, that, you know, this patient was facing potentially permanent neurological damage and, you know, at the extreme end could have spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. It wasn't until that point that the insurance company said, hmm, paying for a pediatric patient to spend the rest of their life in a wheelchair versus paying for the drug, I guess we'll pay for the drug. And so he ended up getting on therapy and uh, made just about a full recovery. But it was devastating to go through that entire process and you feel completely helpless. And I was like, you know, we live in New York City. We see the top doctors. We have the top health insurance you know, we're calling every single day trying to figure out why there's a holdup. The doctor says one thing, the insurance company says another, the pharmacy says a third. Why can't we get, um, you know, this patient on therapy? And it was that frustration of having lived, lived that experience that I became a joke, prescription obsessed. And I started tracking, I, would, I put my analyst hedge fund hat on, and I started tracking every single thing about prescriptions. And then I started tracking what was happening with healthcare and technology. And essentially what I realized is that there were three buckets of prescriptions, retail drugs, classified drugs, and a really esoteric market called specialty drugs. And all the rules and regulation and technology was going to focus on the first two bu- buckets. So you had e-prescribing and prior op tools. And you had, you know, registration systems to track um, Adderall and Vicodin and everything. But the $100,000 life-saving, life-altering medications were being utterly left behind. And that's that third bucket with specialty to send for itself over fax, phone call, and voicemail. And what I found was that the average time to fill from when you get diagnosed with a patient to when you actually get therapy is about two months. So you imagine... You know, if you've ever had a minor incident where you've had a sinus infection, you've had to wait five days, uh, you know, before the doctor says, you know, come back in a week or five days. We'll see if you really need a medication. You just feel miserable for those five days. Imagine if you actually had a disease that was progressive and terminal. And if you didn't get on therapy, you were really looking at, you know, incredible loss of function, loss of quality of life and a shortened life. And so that's the that's what threw me into specialty drugs and ZapRx. Fun fact stands for Zoe's prescription app, and uh, all we do is focus on, on the specialty drug space. That is so interesting. And so you have built this company now over several years. You know what is the result? What what problem have you solved for people? How have you? What does it, it do? What does it yeah. do? Yeah, so I, I'll make an analogy here uh, that I think is more familiar to people. Uh, we're like the Amazon one-click uh, for these $100,000 medications, but we have a rules engine that basically understands you know, this drug, this insurance, here's all the clinical information that's required. And doing this data-driven approach using software, we've cut fulfillment from two months down to 3.7 days. So patients are getting on therapy in 3.7 days, which means they are healthier, uh, they have better, you know, quality of life. They have better outcomes, and it's basically helping, uh, you know, triage and coordinate the care. For so these who really, pays? Uh, yeah, who, who pays? pays right? <laughs> Lisa and I are. Is yeah, that, yeah. Are you getting the? Are you helping the payers make better decisions? Are you helping the, the pharma companies uh, like uh, kind of get market? Pe- yeah. Are you helping the patient fill out the, you know, appeal form better? I mean, what is the? Thing? Yeah, we want to follow yep. the money. Help us understand. Absolutely, follow, follow the money. It's a, it's a great thing. If we want to be rich, rob a bank, right? Um, so ZapRx is a platform play, which means there's multiple entry point and value props for multiple stakeholders. And the stakeholder that pays the most is Biopharma. 
because they're trying to understand using aggregated de-identified data what the bottlenecks are uh, to, uh, to better enable patients um, and, get, and increase their access to therapy. The insurance companies are the next largest uh, segment that pays, but they're the last channel that turns on revenue. Um, because you need to have a, a lot of clinical values, and they're just um, they, they move slowly as a, a channel, uh, but they're the second largest uh, uh, channel that pays. And then after that, there's a smaller model for uh, the pharmacies as well as the doctors themselves. Patients never pay, uh, so everything is you know free for the patient, uh, and the goal is to really increase transparency and increase access and use that using a data-driven approach, and then various stakeholders can uh, buy the data uh, as it relates to what are, where are these fulfillment bottlenecks, what's getting approved, what's getting rejected, and why. So in its crudest form, though, I mean, the, the pharma companies who, pay, who are interested in your data because they want to sell more drug, and the payers who pay you are interested in what you do because they want to, to pay for less drug. <laughs> so how do you make the same product work for both parties? So the way uh, the way you call that is the right patient, the right drug at the right time, right? So that's actually where biopharma and payers align uh, because you don't, you don't want to have the wrong patient on the wrong drug at the wrong time. Um, and so it's really critical to show that these patients are very high risk and qualify and they have tried other therapies and have not responded to other therapies first. And so that's it. So is it an economic argument that you're making for them or a clinical one? Or the, in the end, is that the same thing? Um, yeah, this is, it's, a little, it's a little bit nuanced. So basically, the economics argument and the clinical argument um, are actually fairly related. So patient wouldn't necessarily qualify for a drug unless they have a lab test that proves, you know, without any question of a doubt that that patient has that disease. And then from there... If there is no other therapy, then they qualify for the frontline therapy, or you pull in additional labs to show that they've tried a frontline therapy and they haven't been responsive, at which point they qualify for a different therapy. But just so I understand, uh, I'm just trying to figure out where you fit. I'm fascinated by this. Um, but are you sort of a like a data collection platform? Or are you a service? Like, who would engage? Like, how would it start? Who? So... I, I, maybe to kind of enter it like this. Let's say that the relative you were talking about who who needed a particular drug but couldn't get it, how would having your company around, where would that impact things? Like who would have... How would it engage? So, yep. So you would, if you were a patient, you uh, your primary care physician thought that you potentially had a rare disease, they would refer you to a specialist, at which point if the specialist is using ZapRx, uh, they would say, you know, I'm going to run these labs. I'm going to see if you have this disease. They run the labs. They see that you have the disease. They say, okay, I'm going to write a prescription for you. And that specialist, if they're using ZapRx, uh, our software really understands, you know, what insurance the patient has, what clinical information is going to be necessary to ensure that the payer does the right patient, right drug, right time, and basically says, I feel comfortable that there is enough clinical evidence here that this patient warrants this drug. And 97% of the time, we have a first-pass approval on our drugs. And so patients get on therapy in 3.7 days. So you're almost sort of like this back office function in a sense, or like decision support um, for, let's say, rare disease docs where um, they're dealing with these conditions and your software enables them to make sure that they've done the right tests 
and have asked the right questions so that when they do submit the approval or whatever it is, and do you take care of that paperwork too, or do you just, or not just, but or is the idea to make it, to sort of demonstrate that they are, that by doing all of this upfront work and kind of organizing it, they're likely to, you know, make the right decision and the patient's likely to get reimbursed. Yeah, so we let the doctors, we don't, we don't impact clinical decision making. We put all drugs um, that are specialty drugs on a platform. So I'll give an example with pulmonary arterial hypertension. There's about 16 drugs uh, that a doctor could use uh, to treat uh, a patient. And there's about eight orals, four inhaled and four infused. And typically you start an oral, then add an inhaled and then add an infused. So you'll be on a three drug cocktail by the time your disease uh, is fully progressed. But if it's that first point, uh, you've just been diagnosed uh, so you're starting on an oral. There are eight orals to choose from. We'll add all eight orals. And what we see is that the clinicians will pick one of those based on further conversation with the patient. So, you know, some orals have to be taken more frequently versus others. Um, some orals have, you know, liver hepatoxicity, so you have to come in for more frequent lab tests. So there's often a trade-off. So the clinicians have those conversations with the patient to determine, you know, what um, – which oral is going to enable the patient to be the most adherent and then ensure that the patient gets on that, that therapy. And they use our software to go through ensuring that they pull together all the right uh, clinical documentation so that the insurance company then covers that selected oral. Are you affected by the world of formulary? I mean, does that become your nemesis? Because a lot of the companies would say, you know, well, that's nice, there's eight drugs, but only two are in my formula. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a very astute question. Uh, our software has pretty much unblinded the payer formularies. And so we understand, um, and I wouldn't be so aggressive to say AI for a formulary or predictive, you know, formularies, but we really understand what uh, the values are clinically uh, that are going to ensure that the payer can assess the right risk. And so that comes into pulling in all the lab tests, the diagnostic, the proof of sale therapy. And what we've seen is that without Zaplarex, it's actually a very messy process. I may be skipping over something very important, but the average specialty drug is if you're going to essentially apply, quote unquote, for um, approval from a payer, it's about 20 to 40 pages worth of paperwork for every single drug. So that may be an important part of the story that I, I glossed over. So the chances of the doctor or nurse not pulling in the right information is quite high, right? Because 20 to 40 pages worth of paperwork, the chance that you forget something or you don't submit something or you don't have the nuanced knowledge that this payer requires this lab test uh, for this disease category, but another payer does not, they require a different lab test. That sort of insight is very hard um, to track if you're doing a manual process. Whereas we see the nation nationwide prescribing trends because we put all drugs on the platform and we have pretty broad coverage uh, and adoption uh, in, for our software. So that's where the rules engine becomes intuitive. And the more people that use it, the smarter our software gets in, ter in terms of ensuring that you're pulling in the right data uh, to help with that, that formulary access. Well, so just to, to transition to a sort of different topic, if you wouldn't mind, um, and we don't have that much time left, but I really wanted to get to this, which is you told me that Zaparex is your baby. You don't have a husband or a <laughs> wife. You don't have kids. So this is where you pour your emotional energy. And I'm curious, how does that approach differ from those that work for you? Can women have both family and company uh, babies and and make them both successful? And, and does this in any way differ for men and women who may work with you or for you? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because people often ask the question, can you have both? 
I think the short answer is yes, if. There's a whole bunch of ifs that come next. Uh, but at a high level, you have to have the right spouse uh, who's going to support you and take on a greater load if you're going to found a startup, male or female, right? Uh, also, you have to have the right investors who are compassionate and believe in having a bit of a work-life balance. And then you have to set up your company with the values really from the outset uh, to have those flexible office hours or flexible vacation time. And you have to have the support of the executive team, both male and female, in order to have that, uh, that ability to be both a founder, uh, CEO, and also a parent. Um, I have I have elected not to have, have children, and that's been my personal path. But I have you know 50% of the entire Zapparex team is comprised of women, and about 75% of the executive team is women, and then 100% of the C-suite are women. So we have a lot of women in, in really you know high-powered roles, and what we have you know set as our values is that you know women can take time and work from home when they need to. And that doesn't, that's not a quote ding against them in any capacity. And by having so many women uh, in the leadership roles at the very, very top, what we've seen is that, you know, they've worked really hard. They work around the clock and they appreciate so much the fact that they can take that time. And what's really interesting is that I've seen men now spend more time being really, you know, thoughtful spouses who lean in at home. And so there's, for example, a man on our team who's a vice president He's been with the company for five and a half years, and he has walked his children to school every single day because it's okay to show up at the office at 9.15 in the morning. You know, he doesn't have to be here at 7 uh, because we have that flexible time, and he's prioritized taking his children to school every day. Uh, and he's been able to do that for five and a half years. And so there's just a mindset, a mindset of support across the ent- entire executive team. And so, yes, the, the answer is it is possible, but it's possible with a whole bunch, a whole bunch of ifs um, attached to it. Before Lisa ask the last question, maybe just to ask you a question. You know, you were sort of talking about how the C-suite um, was that. Uh, you know, is all is all women? You were saying, and I'm wondering if that's a um, uh, if that's a, a deliberate choice um, or just how it worked out in terms of trying to find the best people. And I'm wondering because if in a reverse situation, if a C-suite was entirely men, um, Lisa would be here saying, oh, my gosh, you know, it's like a mantle. It's sort of like where's the diversity? If we authentically believe in diversity, then we should believe in, um, you know, getting multiple different representative views. And that should apply independent of whether it's all men or if it's all women. I was just wondering how you thought about that. Yeah, we've had uh, male C-suite officers in the past. So I think, and we will in the future as we continue to grow the company, I think, you know, I've looked to hire the absolute best talent uh, for each role. And what I've found is that I can hire incredibly high-powered women for roles, uh, almost, you know, almost overqualified for the role because it's, and this is very interesting, women, when they are applying to companies, they really do look at the demographics and the diversity of a company. Women don't like to enter roles where they're going to be the first woman or one of a handful of women. And a lot of it comes into their experience where if they disagree with somebody, uh, they're being told, you know, you're being emotional. Or if they bring up a point, 10 minutes later, a man will bring up the point and he'll get credit for the idea or the com- comment. And And the women are just, so incredibly fed up with it. So you're like basically able, you're able, you're able to arbitrage the <laughs> endogenous sexism. It sounds like in a way that you're able to uh, wind up with, like to sort of like upgrade to, um, you know, top grade your team just on the basis yeah, of having yeah. sort of like a non-discriminatory very, very, environment. Yes, very good, very funny point. 
Um, I do have this hypothesis that I've only really um, been working on through, you know, very soft data, uh, you know, more sort of my own insight, what I've sort of seen in, in startup land versus, you know, really, you know, hard quantified, qualified data. Uh, I really have the theory that diversity starts in your first six hires. So however many women you have, if you have 50% women in the first six hires, that is going to hold um, through. If you only have one woman in the first six hires, it's going to become exceptionally more difficult when you have 10 employees, 20 employees, 50 employees, 100 employees. Uh, same goes for um, any sort of other diversity qualifications aside from just gender. So the more diverse that six-person you know, formation stage of a company is, the uh, the greater the diversity will be um, as the company scales. And the more homogeneous it is, the harder it is going to be to break that diversity spell as the company scales. Well, um, that's really, really interesting. I, You know, I think you have exhibited throughout your life and career just a real interesting passion for risk-taking. And um, obviously that started even with back with learning from your mom. And I know that your hobby is race car driving, which I love uh, the idea of that. I think it's so um, funny to think about somebody who's, um, you know, on the one time uh, loves to take care of baby bald eagles and that the other time is, you know, running around at top speed in a race car. T- tell us about how that even occurred and how do you relate that to your overall sort of personality traits that make you a good CEO? Sure. So I think, you know, one, just having that risk uh, appetite. Uh, so I'm, you know, an adrenaline junkie through and through. And I think, you know, building a startup from scratch, you know, you throw yourself in into the fast lane and then you figure out how to navigate. And driving a race car is not too dissimilar because everyone's going to have that first time behind the wheel, that first time going 100 miles an hour, that first time, you know, gear breaking that first time, uh, passing someone the first time they spin out. Uh, and so much of that is actually similar to building a startup from scratch. And what I also found, one reason I got so into race car driving is because I'm sure you know this, 97% of dollars, uh, venture dollars every year goes to men and only 3% goes to women. But the new sort of thing that all venture capitalists are doing to bond with their entrepreneurs and kind of build buzz around the cool things that they do for their portfolio companies is, uh, is to host track days. So I started getting invited to, to these track days. And I was like, listen, I will not be one, the only token woman who shows up and then not know how to drive a freaking race car. So if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all out and I will literally drive circles around these other male CEOs and the partners and you know, <laughs> everybody else <laughs> in the portfolio. Um, so I, you know, hook, line, and sinker committed. I joined a race club uh, in upstate New York. And then I bought a Mazda Global Cup car, and I actually bought the car from the youngest female-sponsored race car driver in America. Her name is Aurora Strauss, and she took a gap year from Harvard to come uh, shadow me for a year at ZapperX as my founder's associate. And uh, she's just been sponsored by Tiffany and Under Armour, and she races a Tiffany Blue race car. And she, I believe, has just announced her sponsorship um, with BMW. So that is awesome. Wow. Super, super <laughs> cool Christ. woman to follow. Uh, super cool experience. And it's another example of women supporting women in male dominated 
uh, industries. I love that. I love that. That's great. All right. Well, Zoe, it's been a wonderful experience. What a talking show. To you. A Incredible. Lot of a lot so of inspiring. Take care. Have a good Thank day. Thank you. All right. Thanks. You too. Bye, guys. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> right? I mean, oh my she's awesome. You know, I met Zoe just very, very recently, you know, and like so many, I mean, it's interesting. We have had many old friends on the show, people we've known well. Zoe was somebody introduced to me by a mutual friend just I can recently. see how you might get along. And I was like, damn, I need to know this woman. She and I, we, I don't know how to drive a race car, but uh, I just you know, think it's actually awesome. funny. As a previous guest, Karen, um, she had almost a very similar experience because you're right that people are doing this sort of bonding over race cars and she loved it and felt super intense about it. I feel very sad I haven't been invited to one of these things. I, I, I'm, I'm devastated. Wow. Well, anyway. <laughs> I just want to be that person like in Greece where you lower the flag. <laughs> well, you can follow David Shewitz's writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal review. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin and her writings at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. And if you like the show, please go to iTunes and give us a good rating. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Room, room.